Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. We have a bunch of Saints Feast Days in January, so on today's Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano is going to talk about some of them. Saint Andre Bassett, Saint Agnes, Saint Sebastian, um, Saints Timothy and Titus, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and the great Saint Anthony of the Desert. Before we get there, I'm going to tell you about another Veritas show that you should definitely be listening to. It's called Restless, and it's on Fridays at noon. Father Joseph Gill and three friends talk every week about things that are relevant to young adults, about relationships and work and enjoying life and prayer and how to be Catholic as a young adult in today's society. This is a show done by millennials for millennials, but you can listen even if you don't fit into that demographic. So tune in Fridays at noon on 1350 AM or download the Veritas Catholic Network app and listen to the podcast. More information is at www.veritascatholic.com. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Let Me Be Frank. Uh, it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning to you, my friend. Morning, Excellency. We have um, a lot to talk about today. We do. We, we have a really good and uplifting, I think, uh, hour planned out. But before we get to the uplifting stuff, of course, I need to ruin it uh, ahead of time. <laughs> because I'll, I want to ask you, um, I think it was last week, uh, the Holy Father um, has now officially allowed women to become lectors and acolytes. And I just want to ask you, you know, how, how, do we, how do we look at that? How do we take that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, if, from my perspective, my friend, it is a natural evolution that began with Saint uh, Paul VI. See, because the, 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 the liturgical ministries of lector and acolyte are precisely that. Since Paul VI, they are liturgical ministries. For a very long time, they became uh, steps towards the ordination of a man to priesthood. And they were restricted only to uh, men in formation to become a priest. So they were considered, for lack of a better word, minor orders. But in fact, there is no such thing as a minor order. You're not ordained to these, all right? You're commissioned, you're installed to do this. So when Paul VI opened it up to lay men, he did not open it up to lay women, and therefore it still remained a practice only among those who were going to eventually be ordained, right? So, with the study that St. John, um, John Paul II instituted for altar service and allowed women uh, to serve at the altar was the next step of the evolution. And now Pope Francis has taken the code of canon law and has changed the word so that instead of it being lay men, it is lay persons, so both men and women. So it applies to both women and men who are not seeking ordination or in seminary formations, open to both. Right. To be installed in this liturgical ministry that is not the stepping stone to ordination to priesthood, it stands on its own, in its own right, with its own set of duties and responsibilities. Right. And, and, right. and so this does not open the door then to... No, no, no. No, no. One has nothing to do with the other. Okay. And what it does is regularize, in some ways, the practice that has already been in many countries in the world, 
where men and women both have served as extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. They have served as readers, right? This formalizes it. Yeah. Now, the difference between the two is that one is considered extraordinary and you receive a mandate <coughs> for a period of time. This is an institution, so you're installed publicly through a liturgical act, presumably during mass, and that's uh, an institution that extends for your life. Hmm. So we're talking about very different things, and therefore the formation is very different. Okay. So what we're doing <coughs> for, for what we currently have would have to give way for those who are willing able and ready to do the formation to go into a much more intensive and lengthy formation to do the other. Okay. And quite frankly, we can't do anything until the conference discusses the issue studies. It gives us guidelines as to age formation requirements. So, so it's just the next step, but I do not see this as anything other than the next step of what has been evolving for 50 years. Yes. Right. And yeah. regularizes what already exists in many ways. Right. And importantly, it's the next step, but it's not the next step towards ordination that that's that's a, a key thing well no the holy father has said clearly john paul has said it francis has said it benedict has said it that in the mind of the church um ordination um has for the sacred orders um for ministerial priesthood has always been re reserved for men because it follows the mind of the savior who could have chosen women if he wanted to Mm -hmm. and purposely did not, right. but chose only men to be his apostles. And therefore, we do not have the authority in law or through revelation to change that practice which was set by the divine Savior. So that's ultimately the rationale. It's not a question of equality of, of the genders or not at all. It's a question of this is the divine practice that the Lord established for a reason that he did not necessarily explain nor did he have to yeah. to us yeah right so that's the, so that's the issue there but no no i actually welcome this very much because i think this is this is a a, a rightful recognition of laymen and laywomen both in their contribution to the liturgical life of the church i think it is a step forward in my opinion okay great yeah i'm sure we'll you answered uh i'm sure many people's questions there so mm -hmm. um so we have a, a packed show, so let's get, get to it. We're going to, as I said, it's going to be an uplifting show. We're going to talk about the uh, six of the heroic saints that are whose feast days are celebrated in January. Yep, and absolutely. So there's a lot, but we picked six. And um, I, guess, uh, I guess a great saint to start with, uh, considering this is the year of St. Joseph, and our diocese is also going to dedicate itself to St. Joseph mm -hmm. this year. Um, mm -hmm. We can start with a man who was so devoted to St. Joseph, and that's St. Andre Bassett. Yes, Brother Andre, right, as he's known. To your point, he was extraordinarily devoted to St. Joseph. In fact, the oratory up in Montreal and, and, and he go, are in the same breath. They're always in the same breath. Interesting things about Andre, he was a lay brother, so he was never ordained a priest. Right? And he, uh, his service was what we would consider a lot of manual duties and responsibilities, and yet he found great joy in them. And he has such a tremendous devotion to St. Joseph that many people brought to him the sick, or he would visit with the sick, and using blessed oil would pray for the intercession of St. Joseph upon those individuals, many of whom were cured. Right? Now, 
why is he such a great role model? He was, he was one of 12 children. His father died when he was 10 years old. He was orphaned at the age of 13. Believe it or not, he lived in Connecticut for a short period of time, but oh, not wow. in our diocese. Okay. He lived in Connecticut for a while. He understood sacrifice. He understood suffering. He understood manual labor. And he served as porter, sacristan, laundry worker, messenger, right, for the, for the brothers. And yet in that simplicity, he had a keen awareness of what really mattered. Mm. Right? So many ways he modeled his life on St. Joseph, who was also the quiet worker, humble, um, did what was required of him and did it generously with no great fanfare, no great speeches. Um, the other thing about Brother Andre, which is very interesting, so, that, so I think that's a role model for all of us. The other thing that's interesting is that in his own time and age, he was not always accepted. So people, some people considered him to be a charlatan, hmm. fake. Yes. With all these, these rumors of cures and all the rest. And that didn't faze him in the least because his, his, the root of his spirituality was the faith he had, right? In the Lord and his merciful love and his great devotion to St. Joseph. So what's the lesson? If you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you will be controversial. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're not taking the easy way around. You're going to be controversial. But he had tremendous peace of mind. And he died at the age of 91, if I'm not mistaken. So he lived a very long life. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, these guys. So, and um, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the healings that he did. Well, there was a variety of them, for what I remember. Right? The, the sick came to him in, for, with many different maladies. And not everyone was healed. But when he prayed for their intercession of St. Joseph, many were healed. Um, and that's where the controversy came. Because some people say, this is all staged, this is all nonsense, blah, 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 this is psychological, this is you know, group hysteria, all this other crazy stuff. Uh, but it was just grace. It was the operation of grace. Remember, miracles are signs that point us to the presence of God. We talked about that before. They're not magic. Yes. Right? So that you realize that the Lord is present in his power right there. That's what a miracle. And therefore, many of those miraculous healings, of which he was just the agent. He was not the protagonist. He was the agent. He was the vessel. Point to the glory of God through the incession of St. Joseph. It has nothing to do with Andre. And he'd be yeah. the first one to say so. But in a world where it's all about me, they would accuse him of limelight, grabbing, it's all about you. It had nothing to do about that. Nothing. Right. Yeah. You know, I love these. Um, we're going to talk later about Thomas Aquinas, who is obviously an amazing saint. But uh, for someone like me, who does not have that intellectual capacity that he does, so hard to relate to. But these simple guys like Andre Bassett and Joseph of Cupertino and... Solanus Casey, who we talked about, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, in many mm -hmm. ways, so much more relatable. Uh, and and uh, an unnecessary role model for a life in the modern world that's becoming ever more and more complicated, more quote-unquote sophisticated, more removed from the roots that ordinarily would animate our life, right? It's, 
it's it's back to the basics prayer devotion work fidelity speak when there's something worth saying mm-hmm. don't speak simply because there's the opportunity i mean i should talk i have a podcast <laughs> but that's not the point <laughs> well you have something worth saying though excellency so <laughs> one would hope we, we hope <laughs> yeah and uh the the way as as you mentioned with uh, earlier in an earlier show with Solanus Casey and with Andre Bissett, the way these simple guys they just went about their simple duties, accepted them and did them, you know the little things with great love, as uh, Mother Teresa used to say. You know, in the end, I read that in the end, uh, Andre Bissett needed four secretaries to handle the eighty thousand letters he would receive every year. I mean, it's amazing. Oh yeah, exactly. Right. Well, because there's something that touches deep within the heart when you experience someone like Brother Andre. Right? Hmm. Because most of the time, we're exhausted with the niceties of life. But when we hit the foundation of life, it's a rare individual who doesn't say, wow, right? Yeah. Um, what am I missing? And that's why he had those those people write to him. They sensed something quite genuine, and it's quite simple. Yeah. In the end. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Can can we can we talk about um, Saint Agnes, who was just a child but important enough to be included in the canon of the Mass? Oh yes, in the Roman canon, absolutely. I think when she died, she was what ten, twelve. Yes. On that, give Young. or take. Her feast day is the 21st of January, right? Yes. All right. Now, I have a great uh, love of St. Agnes because uh, may, perhaps our listeners may know this already, but there is uh, a custom in Rome associated with the feast of St. Agnes <clears throat> where lambs are blessed whose wool will be made into the palliums that the Holy Father gives to all the archbishops of the world. Wow. Okay. Now, what is a pallium? If you'll notice, for example, the Holy Father or Archbishop Blair or Archbishop uh, Cardinal Dolan or all the, the metropolitan archbishops of the world, above their vestment, they have what appears to be a collar. And that collar is white and black wool that goes over their vestment. And what that is, is the yoke. It's imaging the yoke that goes around oxen, right, in the ancient world. And that comes to the archbishops from the Holy Father as the successor of Peter, as a sign of their connection to Peter, their unity with Peter, and the reminder of Peter to them that they will need to bear the yoke of Jesus Christ and they will suffer for what they need to do. So what's really neat about this is that the the lambs are blessed on the Feast of Agnes because remember the, the word Agnes means both Agnus Dei, lamb, and it also means chastity, chaste, purity. Hmm. So they make the connection in her name. And Agnes lived at the end of the third century, right at the beginning of the fourth century. 
And we, we've talked about the Diocletian persecution. The Emperor Diocletius was just ravenously anti-Christian, wanted yes. to stamp out the Christians at all costs, brutal in all that he did. So you can see the connection with suffering too in St. Agnes, the palliums. I mean, it's a beautiful convergence of, for those of us who are clerics, but particularly particularly those who are archbishops who lead the church in a profound way, what it means to, to, to do that leadership in Christ. You know, it is, it is beautiful. It really is beautiful. She herself was martyred because, again, as is typical of the time, there were suitors who wanted to have a relationship with her. She was a virgin. She wanted to protect the virginity that she had vowed, and she paid for her life to do that. There's a, there's a great uh, image in St. Agnes that, uh, in the stories of St. Agnes, where they wanted to burn her alive, and the wood would not burn. She, it just would not burn. Yeah. And then eventually she was either, there's dispute whether she was clubbed to death or stabbed to death, but we're talking a 12-year-old. Yeah, and the whole the holiness that she uh, exuded. I mean, the the other stories that I saw uh, that I saw are that um, she was uh, condemned to be dragged naked through the streets to a brothel because of her refusal, and um, as she prayed, her hair grew and covered her body and and you know protected her modesty. Right. Well, I mean. That's typical Roman. It's typical Roman. Romans, the Romans just did not punish. They humiliated. They, they subjugated. They dehumanized. That's the recipe for a tyrannical empire to keep control of all its provinces and nations under its control. You had to instill not just fear. You had to instill terror. Yeah. So... It was one thing if they hauled St. Agnes or the early martyrs and just, you know, put them to death. But they made spectacles of the earliest in the fora at the Vatican and so many other places, right? The Colosseum. They had animals eat them alive. Yeah. They were burned to death. And sadly is that the crowd wanted to see that, which is so perverse. So perverse. And the same thing with Agnes. I'm sure there have been many a spectator who would have come out of his house or whatever else to watch this girl, 12 years old, all right, being dragged naked through the streets because it was humiliating, dehumanizing. And then she'd be put to death. Right? Yeah. It's just, it is, it is so evil, that sort of behavior, and yet was very common in the ancient world. Yeah, I you know, and as you're speaking, it occurs to me. I mean, first of all, um, I have an 11 year old daughter, so I can mm-hmm. imagine Saint Agnes, and you know what you're saying. She's such a great saint for today because not only are we living in those in similar times as you've said before, Excellency, with our faith under assault from all sides, um, but also because chastity and purity is under such assault as well, even for young children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the parallel is also, there's an interesting parallel, and that is in the ancient world, like in the, in the time of the Diocletian persecution, general society was promiscuous, sexually um, promiscuous. Therefore, for a young person not to fall prey 
to that was difficult and required a tremendous amount of support because most of the time you are seduced by the general ways and norms of the world around you, especially when you're very young, you're very impressionable. So, so it's all the more remarkable that a person like St. Agnes remained pure and desired to remain chaste, um, which is a testimony to her faith because everything in life would have told her, just go with love, what do you want? Do what everybody else is doing. Now, isn't that a parallel to our own age? Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. You know, I recently told a, a dear friend of mine, we were chatting about, you know, uh, young people and serving young people. And this friend of mine is, is a priest. And we were discussing the very sad, disturbing fact that a majority of, of young people, roughly St. Agnes's age, 11, 12, in the United States today are sexually active in some way. Okay, in my mind, that's like giving a blowtorch to someone who is six years old and say, don't press that button, <laughs> which they will do. Yeah. Right? And they led to that because all of society and everything we have now put to the forefront in our society, right? It's over-sexualization of so much reduction of a person to to their physical body and to their and the beauty supposedly of that body yeah. it is it is just just an awful situation for a young person even with the help of his or her parents to try to remain focused on what matters like saint agnes yes all right that's where kind of the parallel is quite sobering to consider for our young people today, and therefore St. Agnes is a great role model. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have, uh, uh, I want to talk quickly about another saint who was martyred uh, under the rule of Diocletian. And oh, that's, St. Uh, Sebastian. Yes. Yeah, yeah St. Sebastian, mm -hmm. who was a soldier, from what I understand. And um, we know about St. Sebastian because of St. Ambrose and some of the writings of St. Ambrose. Um, the image of Sebastian, it's interesting, is that he was uh, put to death with a series of arrows. Now, I'm not exactly sure what you call that by being killed by arrows, but whatever that is, that's exactly what was done to him. But what is actually the case is that he was left to die, but did not die from the attacks of these arrows. Now we're talking a soldier, so maybe someone in his early 20s, right? Mm -hmm. Because of his faith. Because he was seen as a traitor, <laughs> right? Because soldier, you're in service of the emperor. So right. therefore you worship the emperor, you don't worship uh, the, the God that you're claiming. So he was considered to be a traitor, anyway. And it was, I believe it was St. Irene who ministered to him and through her prayers, he actually survived and he himself, now imagine this, Sebastian himself approached the emperor <laughs> when he had recovered and chastised him, right, for his belief in false gods and all that. And then he was taken into custody and he was clubbed to death. Yeah. Now, most people, you know, if you escape death literally by the skin of your teeth, who's going to go back to the protagonist? 
right? And, right. and in a moment of evangelical fervor, try to convert the man. Yeah. Right? And that's exactly what he did. And then he, was, then he suffered a second time and was put to death. So you're talking about purity. You're talking about fidelity. You're talking about evangelical outreach. You're talking about a, a commitment that would make most of us in our contemporary world kind of take, take a step back and pause because um, how, many do, how many times in our lives have we been deeply wounded by someone and resisted the temptation to write them off, turn your back on them and walk away, but actually reached out to them and tried to help them to see the harm they did for their own good and lead them perhaps to a conversion of life. Who listening to this podcast, myself included, has had the opportunity to do that and did not do that? Mm. But Sebastian did. So no, he's the patron saint, you know, against the plague. He's one of the patron saints. He has now been adopted by a lot of young men as the patron saint of athletes. Yes. Right? But quite frankly, he's the patron saint of, of forgiveness, huh. in, my, in my estimation, or reconciliation with your enemy. And the emperor was just too, he was just mad. He was just, he was just. After the initial shock, right? You're a dead guy here in front of me. <laughs> right. And, and you know what? And, but what an opportunity Sebastian gave him. Yeah. He didn't see it. Yeah. I see it. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's like our, our conversation last week about meekness. Mm -hmm. It's not weakness, it's strength under control in service. And without a doubt. Boy, without he's, doubt. yeah. Right. And you know what? And then there's this issue, this, this, this idea, important idea of courage, then courage. Courage. Um, it's one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there's something about that that fascinates young people. You know, we like to think that if we make it easy, young people will respond. My experience has been, they don't always want it easy. They want it worthwhile. Yes. Right? So because it's tough, they won't shy away, but they're not gonna do it unless it's worth the effort, sacrifice, and pain that made it tough. Yes. So again, for saints, and that's true for me too, for you too. So, so Sebastian does give us a powerful lesson in the modern world, is that a relationship with Christ is tough. And you can do this with courage and not be afraid of what the world's going to respond and how it's going to respond, because the Lord's going to be with you. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Let's take a break, Excellency. We got some really good ones uh, on the other side. Great. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network.
Welcome back, everybody, to Let Me Be Frank, uh, featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, we need to talk about the great St. Anthony of the Desert. I mean, this guy, like Padre Pio, is like Superman. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, amazed. First of all, he lived to be 105. <laughs> okay, 105 in the 4th century. Unbelievable. Yeah. Number one. Number two, great friends with St. Athanasius and a great proponent of what was now considered to be orthodox faith against Arius. Yes. Which we talked about. Yes. Jesus, highest of all creation, but not God. Yes. He said absolutely out of the question. But the interesting thing about Anthony, so a lot of things. First, he's considered the father of monasticism, not because he was the first who chose what we now call monastic life, solitary life, devoted in prayer, all the rest. But because he was the first to do it both in the extreme of the desert and drew people around him to follow his example. So in that sense, although he did not intentionally organize a monastery, nonetheless, he was the first to organize people of similar desire to give their lives completely in solitude and prayer. The interesting thing about Anthony is that he... um, In his time in the desert, he had many supernatural temptations and battles that he fought. You know, the father of evil does know how all of this ends. He knows his days are numbered. And his task, as I've said before, is to take as many people with him as he can. But he knows his destiny. And it seems to me with Anthony in the desert, the devil would have seen the effect of this one singular man on the life of the church and all of the monks and monastic communities, male and female, that arose in the East and the West in the 17th century since. So the temptations came to him in all different forms, right? And... um, He resisted them because he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. So the desert, that barrenness, seems lifeless. But for Anthony, it cleared the deck of everything that didn't matter. And he was, if I'm not mistaken, he was illiterate. Yeah, uneducated. Mm -hmm. He was uneducated. So he memorized the scriptures from hearing them. Imagine that. You could recite the gospel. Okay, I can sometimes read the gospel in front of me that I get, I get mixed up. He, he knew it from memory. So now let's think, for example, what level of zeal and passion do you have to love hearing the gospel so much that you soak it in like a sponge and can repeat it back word for word? That was Anthony. Remarkable. And people will go visit him in the desert. For a long period of time, he, he would not see them. And then he did begin to see them. In fact, he even came into the city towards the end of his life, right, to be of assistance to Athanasius in the great struggle with Arius. So he wasn't running away from life. Yeah. Right? He was finding the purpose of life in the yes. desert. Mm-hmm. That's, such a, that's such a great way to put that, Excellency. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because people wouldn't think of it that way, you know. Uh, no, 
No, the, uh, most people, when they're cynics about religion, say that all of us run away from from life by, you know, put, put, pinning all our hopes on a life to come and when it's just the opposite. The only way you're going to, to, to enter into the glory of a life to come is to live this life well. You don't run away from it. You want to find the meaning of it, the foundation of it, yeah. the focus of it, the purpose of it. And some of us can do it in the busyness of the life, of our normal lives. But you need people like Anthony who will say to us who are busy, remember what matters. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. There was a, um, a piece in the National Catholic Register uh, several years ago that talked about three paradoxes of St. Anthony. And the first was just that, well, one of them was one that you alluded to excellency that he was ridiculously uneducated but so wise and so smart Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh the other two one was that he only ate one meal of bread and water a day and yet the description of him was that he was big strong muscular robust youthful even into his uh late uh late life yeah, 105. That's yeah. that's late. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then and then this other thing um, that you just mentioned, he sought solitude. Mm-hmm. And in his lifestyle of doing that, he actually attracted throngs of followers mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. he was going to the other, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, it's interesting. It's, yeah, exactly. It is fascinating to consider that the pursuit of the modern world is about knowledge and information, which we have more of now than any other time in the history of humanity. And yet, the lasting pursuit is one of wisdom, which is the art of living life well. That our contemporary world does not seek. It's exactly what Anthony sought. It's mm. exactly what a Christian needs to seek. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellency, I'd like to. I'd like to move forward to. Um, uh, or backward, depending on how you look at it chronologically, right? Right. But I want to. I want to talk about two men who were um, close followers and friends of Saint Paul, whose feast days we'll celebrate next week. That's uh, Saint mm-hmm. Timothy and Saint Titus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, first of all, they they. So we go. We're going all the way back to the Apostolic Church, right? So there are letters to Timothy and Titus from Saint Paul in the canon, right? So obviously they factored very significantly to St. Paul in his missionary work. St. Timothy was the first bishop of Ephesus. St. Titus was the first bishop of Crete. And they were both missionary companions, right, with, with Paul. My sense is that Titus had a more central role than Timothy hmm. because he almost functioned as St. Paul's interpreter, and St. Paul's secretary. But regardless, what we know about them, we know about them from the scriptures, okay? And Paul met Timothy in his second missionary journey, became his companion and missionary partner along with Silas. 
and there are two epistles addressed to him. Right? Titus has his own epistle addressed to him. He was believed to be a Gentile, converted to Christianity, right? and as I said, worked with St. Paul. What is the enduring lesson? Okay, it seems to me that in the earliest years of the church's life, the relationship that St. Paul had with St. Timothy and Titus clearly recognizes that discipleship is a collegial reality, that it's not an individual possession. Now again, runs against what in modern contemporary society says just the opposite. The starting point of my life is me and my trajectory. St. Paul recognized that he could not do what the Lord asked without companions around him, men and women. There is some significant, the greatest supporters of St. Paul were women, not men. Yeah. Both, both personally and financially, right, were women. But in this case, Timothy and Titus were his companions. You know, the, he sent them out on missionary journeys. He went to, for, the, for them to go into the cities that Paul had visited to, 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 to follow up on what was going on, right? So, uh, Timothy went to Ephesus, for example, right? And then remained there as the bishop. So, the lesson for us is that these converts, Gentile converts to the faith, recognized that their lives were intertwined, that they were called to a personal relationship with the Lord that did not exclude but included one another in this journey of faith. So for you and I and for our listeners in our contemporary world, we have to fight this temptation to think that the road to heaven, which is discipleship, is a road I walk on my own. Yeah. You do not walk it on your own. So everyone married has a spouse who was chosen by God to be your companion to help you to get to heaven. And in ministry, for those of us who are celibate and not, lay or cleric, we are in this together and we work together for the glory of God. That's where the glory is most clear and manifest. When no one takes the credit on his or her own, but all the credit and glory is given to God, and we work together to allow that to happen, to see that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Paul, I think, doesn't he, he, even in his letters, he addresses Timothy and Titus as his sons in Christ, I think. Uh, yes. And, mm-hmm. and then, I think he definitely does it with Timothy. I can't remember if he does it with Titus, but he says, I can't wait till we visit each other and you know see each other again. So, exactly... That the companionship, the the building up of your brothers, sisters in right. Christ. Right, right. And if I'm not mistaken, it, yeah, uh, the conversion of St. Paul and the Feasts of Timothy and Titus are relatively proximate. Oh. I, have I don't to remember now, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm getting old, but I mean, <laughs> so don't trust that. Well, just don't trust my memory 100%. Nonetheless, we're talking about, you talk about Paul, you talk about Timothy, you talk about Titus, you talk about all of these people that were his companions, upon whom you and I stand. I mean, without them, we wouldn't be in the faith. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they're specifically 
your ancestors in a way, Excellency, because they're yes. the first bishops, among the first bishops yes. anyway. Yes, yes. You know what's an interesting question someone asked recently? You know, it's a funny question. And I, I had thought of it a long time ago. I have no answer for it, of course. But someone recently asked the question, if every bishop is a successor of the apostle, which is the apostle you are a successor of? I have no idea. <laughs> no, I don't think there's any way to trace back all the way to the very beginning. But it is a very interesting question. I sometimes think about that, pray about that. Yeah. That I wonder which of the 12. Yeah. Of course, some of my cynical friends says it's probably Judas. I said, don't get funny. <laughs> all right, because that is not funny. <laughs> right? But I wonder, and then I wonder if there is, is now I'm speculating, of course, mm -hmm. you have to bear with me, but... I wonder if that apostle doesn't intercede in a very special way for the bishops mm. who are his direct descendants in heaven. Yeah. I see when we're dead, we will know all that when we get to heaven. But it's it's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Because certainly you do come from one of them, uh, you yes, know, down the line. Sure. And, um, and they're certainly on your side, rooting you on, and, you know, at your side now. You know, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses um, as Paul wrote right. to the Hebrews. So, yeah, that's fascinating. I never thought of that either. Yeah. Let's, uh, hmm. I, I want to leave ample time for, for this final saint for today because uh, he's a giant. Um, I mean, they, they mm -hmm. all are, obviously, but uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and his feast day, I guess, originally was in March, but now it's, uh, it's moved to January 28th. So we celebrate him here in, mm -hmm. in January. Mm-hmm. You know, Thomas, well, he is in many ways bigger than life. He's one of the greatest of the theologians in the history of the church. And um, he came from Aquino, Thomas of Aquino, Thomas Aquinas, which is present-day Lazio in Italy. So he's Italian. And being the son of an Italian family, you could well imagine that family being fairly wealthy, <coughs> that the last thing his father wanted him to be <coughs> was a priest. <laughs> right, sounds familiar. <laughs> and least of all, to be a Dominican, which is ultimately what he became. Right. <coughs> right, because, you know, for the clergy at the time, there was, you know, there was status and, you know... <laughs> given human frailty, you enter into the clergy, you can enter for many different reasons. And I'm sure his parents and his relatives would have seen it as a way, maybe as a, as a, uh, a way to rise. And that none of that interest St. Thomas at all, nothing. And his family had to imprison him yeah. <laughs> to prevent him from becoming a Dominican, which is amazing. And then eventually they relented because that was what the Lord was calling him to. And he had a long, illustrious career as a teacher. Um, and that was his gift to the church. You know, um, Thomas is one of the great articulators and proponents of the beautiful relationship that exists between reason and faith. And how they are intertwined. Our faith is preeminently reasonable. So he's the famous uh, author of the, the five demonstrations of God. And Thomas would be the first to say, okay, so by reason, you can demonstrate that there is a God. 
That's step one. Faith helps you to believe what God has revealed about himself. Not simply that he exists, but who is he? Who is this God? And what does this God invite of us, offer to us? See, one reason can demonstrate, the other faith demonstrates, and Thomas would hold them together. Again, a lesson for the 21st century which says faith and reason are separated. For some people even say is their enemies, science, reason, and faith, and never the twain shall meet. For Thomas, uh, theology was the queen of all the sciences. Yes. But they all fit, right? His teacher was Albert the Great, who was great for a reason, right? Albertus Magnus. And Thomas wrote, oh my goodness, you know, all of his texts, the Summa Contra Gentiles, the Summa Theologica, the, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of pages of writing. Interesting thing is, towards the end of his life, there was an experience that Thomas had. The best way to describe it is a mystical experience. I am not aware, and I could be wrong, but I am not aware if Thomas ever in his writings explains what that was directly. But he makes the famous comment that I'm paraphrasing now about all that he had done up to that point with straw. And, you know, people say, well, what does that mean? I think it means that once you enter into a mystical experience with the Lord that transcends words, the words almost seem unnecessary anymore. And Thomas wrote a lot of words, a lot of words, <laughs> okay? But what I take away from that is that happened towards the end of his life. So this is a holy man, devoted, scholarly, disciplined. That moment happened towards the end of his life, which gives me great hope, <laughs> right, in my yes. own life. And it should for everybody who's listening. There, there are so many... Um cool stories from Thomas Aquinas's life. We should take another episode uh, one day and talk about the Summa Theologica and the five ways, but um, you know, like the, the story of the prostitute in the tower and the, and the pigs flying. But yeah, towards my favorite one is uh, towards the end of his life, he was found praying and crying uh, in the chapel. And yeah. yeah, and Jesus said, you've written well of me, Thomas. What reward would you have for your labor? And Thomas simply replied, nothing but you, Lord. I mean, that's when Jesus said, you, you did well. I'll give you whatever you want. And he just said, I just want you. That. Right. Well, that's, that's a life lived well. In fact, that mystical experience was in December of the year before he died. Okay. Right. And, um, yeah, and therefore... You know, we spend an inordinate amount of our time and attention on the tools of eternal life, sometimes to the detriment of the gift of eternal life, if that makes any sense. Right? 
So we get wrapped up in our ability to teach and our ability to explain the doctrines of the faith. And that is extremely important. But they are tools to get us to eternal glory in heaven. But they're not more important than eternal life. (laughs) And I think that mystical experience, that one humbling and perhaps liberating moment for Thomas when he saw, he said, wow, so that, so that is it. It is you. That's all that matters is you. Mm -hmm. We need a healthy dose of that in the modern church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And philosophically, just as go, Aristotle was his big claim to, I mean, he brought Aristotle into the life of the church, not just Plato. And we could spend a whole, another program to talk about that, the philosophical upbringing. But transubstantiation, substance and accidents, that terminology is Aristotelian. And we base almost all of our Eucharistic theology on Thomas's successful trans, trans, of Aristotle and Aristotelianism to make it consonant with Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, Excellency, one more break and then we've got a listener question uh, when we come back. Great. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question-and-answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I, myself, as a priest, am always learning. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, Excellency, before we get to the question, actually, um, I just want to mention uh, next week we're going to have a special guest joining us. Mm-hmm. So we got a priest named Father Jerry Blazczak. Uh, with the Murphy Center for Ignatian Spirituality, and um, you're going to have a, a nice conversation with him. Oh, absolutely. And the Murphy Center has done tremendous work. And Father Jerry is just a great priest. He's a great leader of the center. I'm looking forward to that, right? Should, should we should get good. some more voices into our little podcast instead yeah. of listening just to me, Babylon. That would be tremendous. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, um, Father Jerry said that he's he you always bring out so much uh, in, in others. So he's looking forward to the conversation with you. Oh yeah, I'm looking, I am too, very much so. So we got a, an email in uh, this week, or last week actually, from George, who wrote uh, asking for clarification on the death penalty. And um, <laughs> he wrote a long email, but uh, I'll just kind of summarize it. He notes that uh, it was once uh, a historically accepted practice um, that both mm-hmm. Augustine and Aquinas wrote in support of capital punishment, mm-hmm. uh, but also the Holy Father has come down strongly against it. So, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, he wrote a, a long email. I showed you the entire email, mm-hmm. um, but I found two main questions there. And the two questions were, uh, did Pope Francis call the death penalty an intrinsic evil? Mm-hmm. Or what exactly was the change that Pope Francis made with regard to the death penalty? And then mm-hmm. secondly, how should Catholics view the death penalty? Is it a matter of prudential judgment or is there a clear-cut side that we should land on? Yeah, it's tremendous. It's a tremendously important question and something that is um, very much misunderstood by many people. But the classic understanding of the justification of capital punishment, that is a person who is found guilty of, uh, let's say, a heinous crime 
or a profoundly mortal sin. The justification was that society, in order to protect itself, had no alternative but to impose a capital punishment. And it would have to be under very strict guidelines to do that. That means there would be no other alternative to, to guarantee the safety of a larger society. And you can imagine there was a time when prisons were unreliable, people would break out, and all the rest. So ultimately, it is never the first choice. It is never the desired choice. Quite frankly, it's the choice that you do with a heavy heart if you ever had to do it because the circumstances demanded it. So what has changed is that the circumstances have changed. In the end, in our, in our contemporary society, there is no justification for capital punishment because there is no reasonable doubt that a society could not protect itself from those who are, for example, a mass murderer. There are ample resources and structures that exist that would keep that person under control for the rest of his perhaps mortal life and not endanger society. So the principal reason why even capital punishment would have been conceived of as permissible is no longer the case. Therefore, its use can no longer be permitted. The logic is just quite simple in my mind. Now, from a Christian point of view, the additional moral imperative not to impose the capital punishment is the desire in mercy to allow a person the maximum amount of time in his human life to seek conversion, repentance, forgiveness, and not arbitrarily end that time that God perhaps would have envisioned to be longer. In the balancing of goods, since society can now protect itself, and a person therefore has, we all have a natural right to a natural death, and that natural death is determined by God in his knowledge, for someone guilty of a heinous crime, that person, God has a date in store for his or her death, not us. And he may be giving that person the time necessary to seek conversion. And since we can protect ourselves, what's the justification for capital punishment? There is none. So in my mind, Pope Francis's teaching is not so much that he is changing anything the church teaches. He is just stating obviously that the conditions have now been changed to the point where it is no longer needed and therefore it cannot be permitted. Does that make sense? Makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Such a timely um, question. You know, last week we had the execution of uh, Lisa Montgomery, who was clearly Mm -hmm. so, you know, mentally, um, she needed Mm -hmm. help. And... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, but, but it's just very. It's, it's still. It's just. Again, it. Um, it raises such a, a, a plethora of issues, like mental illness in our country. And how people who are mentally ill do not have the resources, 
that they need or the oversight that they require to prevent them from doing some of the things that have happened. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and there is the need for closure and healing for the family and friends of person who could be brutally murdered. That has to be taken into account and has to become for Christians an area of tremendous importance because um, those wounds are real. And my sense is, from the literature I have read, many times when capital punishment occurs, there is this desire that that's the closure, but there really isn't the closure because the loss is the loved one who was perhaps murdered. And the execution of his or her murderer does not bring full closure. It never would. Yeah. It's a different type of healing. Yes. But, but, but in this world, in, in, at this point in, in our lives, in the evolution of our society, it, it, uh, to, to, to protect and defend human life means we, we defend human life, even guilty human life. Yeah. Right? Even criminal human life, provided that society can be protected from them. Yes. Which it can. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You can find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Veritas Catholic Network Network is there as well. Uh, Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. My pleasure. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come to us, Holy Spirit of God. Enlighten our minds. Give courage to our hearts. Bless the path before us and help us always to be faithful to to Jesus Christ, who is the Son and our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Father in heaven. We ask this in his holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Steve, I'll see you next week, my friend. Thanks, Excellency. See ya.